Hello, welcome to Tales from the Shadows, a podcast about folklore, fairy tales and storytelling. I'm Emily and I am back here with a very, very overdue episode. I began working on this episode in January, which seems almost like years ago. Time is very strange at the moment. I've, I've said it before, it's the, the whole COVID lockdown thing. I'm just finding time is moving very strangely for me and I'm finding it very difficult to to actually get anything done, which is funny because uh, pre-pandemic when you know, I was super busy, I was getting things done and like, oh, if only I had a bit of time. And now I've got loads of time and find it very difficult to actually get anything done. But I have been doing some things. My biggest news is I cut my hair, which mightn't sound like a big thing, but I cut 23 inches off my hair. My hair was down past my waist. The longest bits could touch my tailbone and it's now been cut up to my jaw. I cut it as part of a fundraiser with an Irish charity called Akidwa, and the aim was to raise awareness about FGM, female genital mutilation, and also to raise funds for survivors of FGM to receive specialised counselling. It was actually hugely successful. We thought we might be able to raise maybe maybe 2,000, maybe at a stretch three, and we managed to raise 6,000 which was great, and also to spread awareness about FGM. And if you go into the episode description, I've put a link to Akidwa's website in case anyone would like to know more what are some of the myths versus some of the facts about FGM, where you can find resources and assistance if you or someone you know has been affected by FGM, and most importantly, what can be done to end FGM. There's a lot that could be said about this subject, but you didn't tune in to hear me talk about this. If you want to know more, I've left the links there. But time to get on to the topic of today's episode, because I'm talking about the loathful lady. And there's just something I need to clarify. I, for years, have been calling this figure the loathful lady, when in fact she's generally referred to as the loathly lady. I don't know how this happened. I think I probably slightly misheard it the first time and it just got stuck in my head as loathful. So that's my little quirk when telling this story. I refer to it as the loathful lady rather than the loathly lady. Just for if anyone's looking up these stories later, you'll probably have more like in a search engine with loathly. Versions of the loathful or loathly lady, they show up all over the place and in many, many different forms. I think we may have already covered one on the podcast. I can't remember, but I know for one of the shadow shows we did, we did look at the pig-faced woman of Dublin, which is a subtype of the European pig-faced woman stories. Nearly every major European city seems to have a story of a pig-faced woman. And in fact, travelling shows used to exhibit pig-faced women. I got this information from QI and it just sounds utterly bizarre because what they would do is they would get a bear, they would get the bear drunk, they would shave the bear, and I don't know if they were just shaving the face and neck or if they were fully shaving the bear, and then they would put the shaved bear in a dress and display it, claiming that this shaved bear was in fact a woman who had been born with the face of a pig. I don't know if the bear was kept in a constant state of inebriation or if they were allowed to sober up. Thankfully, though, this uh, this unique brand of animal cruelty has died out. But the stories of pig-faced women still seem to be alive and well, both in folklore, urban legend, and being reimagined in new forms. The 2007 film Penelope, starring Christina Ricci, who in my head will forever be Wednesday Adams, is a retelling of the pig-faced woman 
A Loathful Lady Story. And the film is great fun. I'd recommend it. It's a it's a nice, fun fairy tale, fantasy rom-com. I might actually watch it again tonight. I think I've got the DVD around somewhere. But yes, Loathful Lady Stories are abundant. And I have gathered together a few to tell you. Two I have taken from the Irish tradition and one from the Arthurian, which might be one of the most well-known Loathful Lady Stories, The Marriage of Sir Gawain and Dame Ragnall. And without further preamble, I give you the story. Once, long, long ago, back in the time of gods and fighting men, back in the time when heroes and monsters bestrode the earth, in a time of knights and damsels, in a time of magic, Arthur, the great king, sat in Camelot and gathered all his knights about their round table. It was a yearly tradition of Arthur and his knights that on the eve of Pentecost, all members of the round table would come from far and near. They would come and give accounts of themselves, their tales of valour and daring do, their quests and adventures. And it was part of this tradition that on this eve of Pentecost, when the round table was full, any person, be they noble or common, mortal or immortal, could come to Camelot and could lay their question before the knights of the round table could set their quest to these bastions of chivalry. And so it was one year, just as with all the others, the knights gathered about the table, and they began to tell their stories, tell their tales. They drank and made merry, but just as the night was at its darkest, three loud knocks sounded on the door. Arthur called for whoever was knocking to come in to present themselves before the knights of the round table. The doors remained shut, but a great voice was heard by all those assembled at the round table. Arthur, King of Camelot, I have come, as tradition permits, to set a quest before you and your knights. Who shall be bold enough to take up the quest I lay before you? All the knights at once cried out, I, 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 foolish, spoke the voice to commit yourselves so willingly before I have even spoken the terms of my quest. Not so, cried Arthur, for my knights are brave and true, and whatever quest you lay before us, I swear upon my life and kingdom, it shall be done. Foolish king to boast so proudly, but let it be so. I shall lay my question before you, when a year and a day have passed, I shall return for my answer. And if it cannot be given, then, Arthur, by your own oath, your life and kingdom shall be forfeit, and Camelot shall fall. Ask us your question. State the terms of your quest. Find me the answer to this. What is it that women want? There was silence at the round table. Then one knight jumped to his feet and wrenched open the great doors. But all that was there was darkness. No trace of the one who had asked the question. Someone at the table laughed. Well, it's a simple thing, isn't it? Just the answer to a simple question. What do women want? Well, that's easy, isn't it? Isn't it? The knights then began to discuss amongst themselves. What, what was it that women wanted? Well, oh, that was simple. Women wanted... Uh, women wanted... What did women want? Uh, well, women... 
women wanted babies? Dresses? To be rescued from dragons by knights in shining armour? As dawn rose, it dawned on the company that not a single member of the round table could answer the question, what do women want? Arthur stood and spoke to his knights. A year and a day we have been given to answer this question. So, my knights of the round table, go from this place, and every woman that you meet, ask her what it is she wants. We shall meet again in a year's time, and I have no doubt that we shall have our answer then. And so the knights of the round table dispersed. They travelled far and wide, and every woman that they met, the knights would ask her the same question. What do you want? But alas, every woman that the knights asked seemed to have a different question. One woman wanted to get a good price for the geese she was taking to market. One woman wanted her children to grow up to be strong and true. One woman wanted to find true love. Another wanted all these knights to stop bothering her when she was trying to sit in her tower and get some weaving done. When a year had passed, the knights again came to Camelot, gathered around the round table. But when the question was asked, what do women want? They were still no wiser. They had no answer to that question. A gloom fell upon them, for if they could not find the answer in the next twenty-four hours, Camelot would fall. And then there came a knocking upon the great doors. Not a great booming knock, as had been heard a year ago. A quiet knock. A timid knock. Really more of a scratch than a knock. Arthur called for the doors to be opened, and when the great doors were flung wide, there, on the threshold, stood a woman. At least, the knights thought she was a woman. Though the figure wore a dress, it, it was hard to tell. The figure was hunched, bent almost double. From its head grew matted, grey hair. The skin that could be seen was paper-thin, crumpled and dry like an autumn leaf, and marred in many places with blotches and warts. The lower lip hung down loose and saggy, revealing in the mouth a few sparse, crooked yellow teeth. The fingers on the hands were gnarled into claws, knuckles swollen with arthritis, nails broken and dirty. Two eyes out of the shriveled, shrunken face looked at the knights, and there was a gleam in those eyes. The figure took a few shuffling steps forward. It spoke in a harsh, cracked voice. Arthur, King, I have what you seek. Arthur beckoned for the figure to come forward. Well, um, uh, good woman, come. If you have the answer we seek, tell us and you shall be richly rewarded. Slowly, painfully, the figure entered the room. The knights found themselves holding their breath as she passed, for there was a stench upon her. She said, waving one crooked finger. Payment first. I shall tell you what women want, but only after I am given what I want. Name your price, and it shall be yours. A husband, a good husband. One of your knights must take me as his wife. Only then shall I tell you the answer. 
Arthur turned to his knights. Well, which of my brave knights shall step forward and take, take the hand of this fair maiden? The old hag cackled at the look of dismay upon the faces of the unwedded knights and the look of relief that passed upon the faces of those already married. Well, don't all jump forward at once. But you would be wise to get a move on. Time is short. One knight rose from the round table. He was young and handsome. In fact, quite the most handsome of any knights there, even more so than the famed Lancelot. His name was Gawain, Sir Gawain, nephew to King Arthur, courteous and courageous, that most chivalrous of knights, known as the Maiden's Knight for his defence of women. Uncle, King, Arthur, I request that I be granted the honour of wedding this woman. The old hag clapped her hands in delight, and many of the knights assembled there breathed a sigh of relief. Not only that they themselves had been spared from wedding the hag, but they felt now that with Gawain safely married off, their own romantic prospects would be much improved. A priest was called, and the wedding was performed. And never before in all of Camelot, indeed in all the world, had such an oddly matched couple been seen, one so fair, one so foul. When the vows were said, Arthur turned to the new bride and asked, Tell me, what is the answer to our question? The old hag shook her head. No, not yet. We must have the wedding feast. And so a feast was laid out. Gawain sat next to his new bride, but though there were many delicacies laid out before him, he could not bring himself to touch a single one. Not so for his new wife. She loaded her plate high and stuffed her crooked mouth, while other ladies of the court assembled there, picked daintily at their plates, eating only a morsel. Not so this loathful lady. She ate full her fill, taking great delight in doing so. In a loud voice she would call for more wine, call for more music, call for more merriment. This was her wedding feast after all, and she was determined to enjoy it. When at last the feast was done, Arthur turned to her again. Good woman, tell me now what is the answer to our question. Surely the wedding is done with. Not yet, she replied. Not till the wedding has been consummated. And she leered at Gawain. Arthur then called for the ladies assembled there to take the bride to her chamber and have her maid ready. The knights pressed strong drink upon Gawain to steady his nerves, before with much laughing they pushed him up the stairs and into the bridal chamber. Gawain entered, prepared to do his duty for his king. He looked about the chamber for his new bride, but could see no sight of her. Then a sound came from the bed. Husband, the night is chill. Will you not come lie down with me and keep me warm? Slowly Gawain walked to the bed where there was a shape beneath the sheets. He pulled it back, but rather than the hideous hag, there lay there a beautiful woman. She smiled up at him with bright eyes and stretched out upon the bed. Will you not join me? she asked. Gawain stammered, I, I, I am sorry, good woman, but, uh, but I cannot, I, I, I am married. Indeed you are my husband. Married to me. Come, will you not kiss me? Gawain leant forward and planted a single kiss upon her rosy lips. But, but how can this be? 
I married. You married a hag. Yes, I have been under a spell this many long year, but you have freed me, or half freed me. The spell is half broken, and there is now a choice to be made, husband mine, for I cannot remain in this form, my true form, always, only half ways. So tell me, would you have me beautiful by day? But hideous by night, or hideous by night, and beautiful by day. Gawain thought on it. He would very much like to have a beautiful wife on his arm, to accompany him to banquets and feasts, to go out riding with him, to be the envy of all. But if she were beautiful by day, when all could see her, alone each night, he would be sharing his bed with the hag. But if she were beautiful when they were alone together each night, then by day he would be the laughingstock of all Camelot, as he took on his arm the foul-smelling, foul-looking creature she had been before. He thought on the matter over and over again, but could come to no decision. He turned to his new wife, to his bride, and he said, I cannot choose, and so I give the choice to you. You decide. You choose. It is your body affected by the spell, after all. Surely you should be the one to choose what is done with your own form. The woman in the bed threw back her head and laughed. Oh, I see I have found not only a handsome husband, but a clever one too. You have found the answer to your own question, and in giving the choice to me, you have broken the curse under which I have lived for so long. Gawain looked puzzled. She laughed again and kissed him sweetly. You see, my dear husband, the answer to your question is simple. What do women want? We simply want the right of choice. And I hope you enjoyed that telling. That's my version of the Loathful Lady story. I first heard that story told maybe five, six years ago. I was in Edinburgh and I was doing a course with the storytelling centre there. And if you ever do happen to be in Edinburgh when the Covid thing is over, when people can travel again and we can see shows and storytelling and theatre, I'd recommend going to the Storytelling Centre. It's a lovely building. It's the old John Knox house, which they, they've used part of the original house and then they've built on a bit more. So if you're interested in that period of history, it's very interesting. But they also have a great bookshop where you can find resources on folklore, fairy tales, storytelling. But they also have a good supply of general fiction by Scottish authors. They also have a small theatre where they do shows and hold talks. So you're bound to find something interesting. And it's across the road from the most amazing fudge shop. It is really good fudge. On this course, uh, the facilitator one day, she told the story of the Loathful Lady. Now, at this time, the Repeal the Eighth movement in Ireland was going very, very strong. The Repeal the Eighth was to repeal the Eighth Amendment in the Irish Constitution, which was added in 1983 and made the life of the unborn, the life of the fetus, equal to that of the life of the mother. Abortion had, I think, don't think it had ever been legal in Ireland, but the Eighth Amendment well, as I said, it made the life of the fetus equal to the life of the mother and anyone performing an abortion or procuring an abortion in Ireland could face up to 14 years in prison. This, of course, was challenged, uh, most famously in the X case. The X case is a famous case in Ireland from the early 90s where a 14-year-old girl became pregnant due to rape. 
This resulted in her becoming suicidal. Now, because abortion was illegal in Ireland, her family planned to take her to the UK to have the procedure done. But her mother asked the guardie if it was possible to extract DNA from an aborted fetus that could then be used in the rape trial. This then led to complications with the guardie as to could they knowingly let someone leave the country to commit an act that in this country was a crime but was not a crime in the country they were going to. It was argued that under the right to life of the unborn, she could not be allowed to travel to have the procedure. This was then appealed to the High Court who gave a ruling that while there was the right to life of the unborn, a woman had a right to an abortion if there was, quote, real and substantial risk to her life. So if there was a risk to her health or if she was suicidal as a result of the pregnancy. The girl in the X case ended up miscarrying. The wording, though, led to further complications because what constituted real and substantial risk, well, it was very much up to up to interpretation. Any pregnancy comes with risks. At what point do you decide that the risk is substantial enough? Doctors tend to be trained in medicine rather than law, so weren't really in a position to interpret this. The result was that a lot of doctors, even if they did believe that there was a risk in carrying this pregnancy, they didn't know if it was enough to perform an abortion. In 2014, there was a case of a woman who was on life support. She was declared clinically dead, but she was also about 14 weeks pregnant. Her family wanted the machine turned off. Their daughter, their sister, their wife, their mother had been declared brain dead. They'd lost her. She wasn't coming back to them. But her body being stuck in this limbo, it was deeply upsetting and it prevented them being able to properly grieve and get closure about her death. The right to life of the unborn, though, meant the machine could not be turned off because of her pregnancy. It was appealed to the High Court and in the end they decided that it was legal to switch the machine off. But the judgment was given in such a way that if a similar situation was to happen again, the results might be different. The vagary of language also led to the death of Savita, and I apologise, I'm going to mispronounce this, Savita Halep Anurva. Savita became the face of the Appeal the Eighth movement because in 2011 she suffered an incomplete miscarriage. Her request for an abortion was denied on the grounds that abortion was illegal under Irish law. The result was that she died from a septic miscarriage. Her death was completely preventable. This was the background in which I heard the story of the Lothal Lady. I had friends who were very involved in the repeal campaign, and personally, I am pro-choice. So when I heard this story about the right to choose, well, that's of course what my mind jumped straight to. For me, the story of the Lothal Lady is a story about the right for bodily autonomy. A story about the right to choose. To choose what happens, to have a say in your own life, in what happens to your own body. The most famous retelling of this story, though, comes from Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales, where it appears as the wife of Bath's tale. And Chaucer's version, it's, um, well, it's a little bit different to mine. And The Wife of Bath's Tale is one that can be hotly debated because it can either be seen as a feminist tale or as an anti-feminist tale. The Wife of Bath makes it very clear that her story is about the power dynamics in marriage. And according to her, the only way for there to be a happy marriage between a man and a woman is if the man gives the wife utter and complete sovereignty, if the wife is allowed to rule. Which at first sounds great, yay, give women power. But it's discussing power in a context where one party has all the power and the other has none. One is the oppressor and the other is the oppressed. Dame Alice, the wife of Bath, 
she seems to view the battle of the sexes as literally a battle. In many ways, Dame Alice, the wife of Bath, is a very unusual female character to find in medieval literature. She is a sexually active and confident older woman who has had at least five husbands and could be on the lookout for a sixth. She's well-travelled, she's been to Jerusalem twice, and she's quite happy to speak her mind. There's a lot to admire in her, and in some ways she reminds me a little bit of Nanny Og from the Discworld, but, well, from my reading of the text at least, I got the sense that she was meant to be, though, a figure of fun, a bit of a comic relief character, and that we were meant to slightly look down on her, on this elderly, uncouth, unladylike woman. But I'm not an expert on 14th century English society or 14th century literature, so I don't know if this is just something I'm putting on the text myself or if it was the intention. Dame Alice puts forward her theory on the solution to a happy marriage and she draws on her own experience, presenting examples of her own former husbands to support her case. But in my opinion, none of her marriages are happy. One of her husbands beat her so badly that she is deaf in one ear. She talks about how married women can expect not only physical abuse from their husbands, but also financial control. Her solution is that from the very start, the wife must needle and scold and see to it that the man has no peace. She should also, at every opportunity, try to emotionally manipulate him. Demalis seems to have gone into marriage as if she was going into a siege battle, knowing that one side would eventually be worn down and have to give in to the other. I don't see this as being a particularly feminist view to take into any relationship. But Dame Alice is saying and doing all of this in a very patriarchal society. So does that make her a feminist character because she is going against the patriarchy? I, I don't really know. All this comes out in The Wife of Bath's prologue before she actually gets to her story. And her version, or rather Chaucer's version, is very different to mine. To begin with, the task of discovering the answer to what do women want is not a task that's given to all members of the round table. It's a task given to one very particular knight, and it's given to this knight as a punishment. This knight raped a woman. In punishment for the rape, King Arthur orders the knight to be put to death, but Queen Guinevere pleads on his behalf, claiming that he's so young and handsome it would be a shame to throw away his life over this. He could have a promising career ahead of him as a swimmer. His life should be spared, and she and her ladies should be allowed to devise his punishment. Arthur relents, and Guinevere tells the knight of his reprieve, but it's a reprieve on a condition. He has a year to find the answer to the question, what do women want? If after a year's time he hasn't been able to discover this, the original sentence will be carried out and he will be put to death. This brings me to a point of background. There's a lot of discussion about whether or not you can separate an artist from their work. And it's certainly much easier to separate an artist from their work. And it's certainly much easier to separate an artist from their work when they've been dead for a few centuries, as in the case of Chaucer. But Chaucer himself was accused of rape in his lifetime and paid off the victim. Historians will argue back and forth as to whether or not he really was guilty of rape. But given the damage that an accusation of rape could cause to the victim's reputation and the fact that Chaucer paid her off, I'm inclined to lean to the side that says guilty. The story then continues with the knight travelling around trying to discover what is it that women want, but unable to find a satisfying answer. With time nearly up, he then comes across a group of young maidens dancing in the green, but they all seem to disappear, leaving behind only one haggard old woman, a truly loathful lady. The sudden disappearance of all the young women may imply that this woman might be a little bit magical, and this could be why... 
When she says that if the knight grants her what she wants, she will answer his question for him, he takes the bargain. This loathful lady then goes and supplies the queen with the answer she desires, upon which she tells the knight what she wants as payment, and that is for him to marry her. The knight tries offering her other things instead, gold, jewels, but no, she wants him as a husband. Very reluctantly, the knight is wed to her. But on the wedding night, she asks him why is it that he seems so despondent. The knight replies that it's because his bride is not the type he would have chosen for himself. She isn't rich, she doesn't come from a noble family, and she's hideous. The loathful lady replies that, well, in some regards, he could see himself as lucky in having a wife like this. No one is ever going to try to steal her away from him, and she will always be faithful to him. Faithful to him because she's grateful to have a husband when she is, as he said, so ignoble, poor and hideous. This doesn't seem to perk up his spirits. So the loathful lady asks him, if he had the choice, which would he pick? A beautiful wife who was bound to cuckold him, or an ugly wife who was faithful? The knight, unable to decide, gives the choice to her, saying that he will put himself under her wise governance. She double-checks before giving him the answer, asking, I may choose and govern as I please? And when he says yes, she reveals that he shall have both, a beautiful wife who is faithful. For he has discovered and given to her what it is that women truly want. The story ends, And thus they lived unto their lives' end, in perfect joy. And Jesus Christ us send, husbands meek, young, and vigorous in bed, and grace to outlive them whom we wed. And I pray Jesus shorten their lives that will not be governed by their wives. So according to this story at least, what women want is to rule. They want governance in all things. Sovereignty. And the idea of sovereignty leads me nicely on to the next story, the tale of Nile of the Nine Hostages. Squire has joined me for this story. You might hear some snuffling in the background. Long, long ago in Ireland, there was a high king called Ucky. Ucky was married to Mongfin of the White Hair, and she had borne him four sons, Bran, Alil, Fergus and Fiacra. But Ucky had taken a lover, a woman who had been taken hostage from a foreign land called Karen, and Karen too became pregnant and was to bear a son. Mungfin had already been jealous of her husband's affection for Karen, and when she heard that the woman was pregnant by him, she became jealous that this child might be favoured over her own four sons. She set Karen to hard work, forcing her to carry bucket after bucket of water from the well to the house, each day, all day, in the hope that this hard labour would force her to miscarry. But Karen was stronger than Mungfin had expected, and the child within her grew strong as well. When Karen was in her ninth month, and still fetching water from the well, she felt the labour pains come upon her. But she was too frightened of the Queen Mungfin to stop her work, and so she continued to the well, and by the side of the well she gave birth to a baby boy. But she was fearful what would happen to her if she was late to bring the water, and more fearful still of what would become of her child if she brought it into Mungfin's house. And so she left the babe there where she had birthed him. And who knows what might have become of the child, if not for the poet Tornan, who had travelled to Tara to the hall of the High King that day. He was drawn to the well by the cry of a babe. He found the child lying there, still fresh with gore and blood from its mother. And when he picked up the crying mite, a vision came upon him. He knew who this child was, and who this child was destined to become. And so the poet took the child away from that place, 
and raised him in secret. He gave him the name Nile, Champion, for he knew that was what this child was destined to become. When Nile was grown to full manhood, Tornan took him to Tara, and the first person that Nile met there was his mother, Karen, dressed in rags and still carrying water to and from the house. He stopped her and cried, Why are you dressed in rags? Why, when you are my mother and I am the son of the High King of Ireland? He took her into the house and commanded that she be dressed in fine clothes, her hair washed and braided and adorned with jewels. And as can be expected, this made Mongfin furious. And when she learnt that this impudent stranger was none other than the son of her husband, her anger only grew. But King Aki was thrilled to be reunited with his long-lost son, and a great feast was held in the honour of Nile. And Nile proved himself to be so charming, so wise, so eloquent, that all in Tara came to love him, all but Mungfin. That night when they were alone, Mungfin demanded that Aki name one of his sons as successor. She believed that Aki must choose one of her sons, one of the sons he had raised. He could not possibly choose this stranger he hardly knew. Aki did not wish to choose a successor from among his sons, but he saw he would get no peace from Mungfin until he gave her an answer. And so rather than make the decision himself, he called for one of his druids and told them to arrange a test, a contest, a challenge to see which of his sons was most suitable to succeed him. The druid told all five young men to go into a forge and make weapons for themselves. But once the men were inside, the druid locked the door and set the forge ablaze. Then druid, king and queen watched and waited to see what each of the young men would rescue from the fire. Bran emerged, and in his hands he carried a sledgehammer. The druid proclaimed that this was because he was a strong man, a fighter, who would defend his king. Fierco came out with a cask of beer, and the druid said, as well as showing that this was a man who had his priorities straight, he would also hold the beauty, the science and the craft of the people. Alil carried out a chest of weapons, showing that he was a military man and one who would take the vengeance of his people. And Fergus? Fergus carried out a bundle of dry kindling, and the druid proclaimed that he would be as dry and impudent as the twigs he held. But Nile, Nile the last to emerge from the burning forge, he carried the anvil. When the druid saw this, he declared that Nile would be king. Strong and solid, Nile would be the anvil for his people. Monfin was not at all pleased with this news, and declared that the druid's pronouncements be kept secret, at least for now. She began to formulate a plan as to how she might rid herself of Nile, and while she plotted, she told her sons to go take their new half-brother out hunting. She needed space to think. The five men took their weapons and food and went out for the hunt, but they took no water with them. They probably reasoned that it's Ireland, tends to be rather wet here. They could easily find a stream or a well to drink from, and there was a good chance it would start raining anyway. But it didn't rain. The day was unusually hot. By midday, the sun was so fierce that they had to stop and take shelter beneath the shade of a tree. A terrible thirst came upon them, but there was no water to be found. Fergus told his brothers to wait beneath the tree. He would go in search of water and bring it back to them. And as he searched, he came across a well. But standing by it, guarding it, was a great hag with a great stick. Her skin was marked all over with sores and liver spots. Her nails broken and crusted with dirt. Her hair was coarse and greasy and as filthy as the rest of her, and her breath stank of rotting meat. 
Fergus asked the hag if she would let him draw water from the well, and she replied that yes, he could take as much water as he liked, if he first gave her a kiss. Fergus declared that he would rather die of thirst than kiss the hag. He returned to his brothers and claimed he had found no water. Each of the sons of Mongfin went in search of water, and each came across the well guarded by the hag. Each asked if they might be allowed to draw water, and each was told yes, but the price first was a kiss. Neither Fergus, Aleel, nor Bran could bring themselves to kiss the hideous hag. Theocra came close, screwing up his courage and screwing his eyes tight shut. He managed to lean forward and place a peck upon her cheek. The hag then told him two of his descendants should become kings, but he himself would draw no water that day. Confused by this, Fiaca returned to his brothers and claimed that he too had found no water. The four princes seemed embarrassed, almost, to mention the hag and the price she had demanded of them. When the four sons of Mongfin had each returned empty-handed, Niall went in search of water. He, in his turn, came across the well guarded by the hag. He too was told if he wished to draw water from this well, he would have to kiss its guardian. Not only shall I kiss you, declared Niall, but if you will have it, I will lie with you as well. He took the hag in his arms and kissed her passionately, and true to his word, he lay down with her by the side of the well, and he was as sweet and as tender to her as the spring rain is to the earth. And as he kissed and caressed her, her body changed beneath him. No more a hideous hag, but a beautiful woman. She told him he would be king, and so would his descendants. A long line of high kings would spring from him and flow down through the centuries. And Niall knew then who the woman was. She was the goddess of the land, the sovereignty of the kingdom, and she had offered him her blessing and he had accepted. She told him to drink his fill of water and then take it back to his brothers, but not to give his brothers anything to drink, not until they swore loyalty to him, to follow him as their king. Niall carried the water back to where his brothers sat beneath the tree, and he gave each one a drink of it, but only after they swore to him that they would be loyal to him, that he would be their high king. When the men returned to Tara, they were asked how their hunt had been, and Niall was the first to speak up. He had only uttered a handful of words when Mongfin cut him off, saying that it was not his place to speak first. Bran was his elder, and so Bran should be the one to speak for them. And it was then that the sons of Mongfin told their mother that they had sworn loyalty to their half-brother, that he was to become their king, and that they would protect him with their very lives. Mongfin had no answer to this, and Niall did indeed become High King of Ireland, with his four brothers serving as vassal kings beneath him. Niall became a great and legendary king. He united nine provinces under his rule, and from each province he took a hostage to ensure peace, and thus he gained his name, Nile of the Nine Hostages. His descendants after him were kings also, and their dynasty took their name from him, of Nile, the Ulnil kings. In the Irish tradition, the Loathful Lady seems to be explicitly linked to sovereignty. In fact, there is another story of another high king called Lugged, and he had a similar experience with the Loathful Lady. In Irish folklore and myth, Ireland is often seen as female, as a woman, and represented as a goddess, a goddess of sovereignty. And this is a goddess who the king has to literally marry. Yes, there are records of literal wedding ceremonies of the king marrying the land in a mystic bond. And yes, this was a wedding that would have to be consummated. 
They don't go into a huge amount of detail on that. The last High King known to have completed this ritual was 6th century High King of Ireland, Dermot Mac Carbale, and I am woefully pronouncing that. Dermot is famous not only for being the last High King of Ireland, last High King of Tara to marry the land, but he also had a triple death. And the story of his triple death is very interesting, but alas, it is a story for another time. Sovereignty was personified as a woman, and the marriage of the king to the goddess of sovereignty was in some ways an echo of his duty to his people and to his land as king. You couldn't become king unless the goddess sovereignty chose you as her mate. And if you weren't keeping up your end of the marriage bargain, if you weren't fulfilling your duties as king, the goddess of sovereignty could take sovereignty away from you. The lady giveth, and the lady taketh away. When there is a good king, a king who fulfills his duties as king, who upholds his end of the bargain, the land flourishes. But when you have a bad king, the crops fail, the land is barren, things go wrong. And this is seen as reflecting in the lady, in the goddess of sovereignty herself. When she has a worthy mate, i.e. someone who is the right choice for king, she is strong, she is young and beautiful. But when she doesn't, her appearance becomes loathful. Niall kissing her and agreeing to lie with her not only lets her bestow sovereignty on him, but it renews her. The good king renews his country. And as long as the king remains a good king, as long as he remains a good husband to the goddess, all is well. But there are plenty of stories about what happens when a king reneges on his end of the deal. One of my favourite of these is the story of the Curse of Maka. The story of the Curse of Maka, it serves the function of setting up things for the great battle of the Tawn in revealing the weakness of the Ulstermen. Her curse is that in their hour of greatest need, the men of Ulster, all old enough to bear a beard on their chin, shall fall down stricken with the pains of labour. This is what gives Queen Maeve the advantage when she comes to steal the brown bull of Cooley. But the story also has another purpose. It's a story about a marriage, about the importance of a marriage contract and what happens when one party fails to live up to their end of the bargain. I'll talk about it in more detail on another episode because it's a great story. But basically, Maka is a magic woman and she agrees to marry a mortal man, but their wedding comes with conditions. She promises she'll be a good wife, she will bring prosperity to him, to his lands, she will care for his children, but in return, he has to love her, he has to cherish her, and he must not speak of her. He's not to tell people about her, not to tell them about her magic, nothing. He's to stay mum. Of course, whenever an Irish man in a story is told not to do something, he goes and does it. At a feast held by the High King, he gets drunk and boasts that his wife could run faster than the king's horse. The king in question is Cahor Macnessa. Maca's husband has broken their marriage vows, but King Cahor then goes on and breaks his marriage vows to the land. Part of being the high king is giving good judgments, and Cahor gives a bad judgment at this point. He declares that they'll put it to the test. They're going to race the man's wife against a horse. She's dragged to Tara and it's revealed she is heavily pregnant. She begs the people not to do this to her, to at least let her wait until she's given birth. But no, King Cahor forces her to run the race. And in running the race, she loses the children. Maka then lays her curse upon King Cahor and the men of Ulster. Because Maka is not just a magical woman, Maka is also the sovereignty of Ulster and one of the aspects of the Morrigan. 
and the men have broken the wedding vows they made to Maka. Her husband broke it by doing the thing she told him not to do, and then Cahor broke it by giving bad judgment. Really, it's a story all about contracts and the importance of keeping up your end of the contract. And we see that in the micro and the macro. The micro being the relationship between Maka and her mortal husband. Their marriage is destroyed and the unborn babes lost because he breaks part of their marriage contract. And then you see it on the macro. Cahor isn't fulfilling his duty as king. He is meant to give good judgments. That's part of his vow to the goddess of sovereignty. And when he breaks it, he brings a terrible curse upon his entire country and begins paving the way towards bloody civil war. It's a really bad idea to mess with a sovereignty goddess. There is one more Irish loathful lady I would like to discuss, and that is Kathleen Nuhulahan. And it's Kathleen spelt with a C rather than with a K. It's the Kathleen Nuhulahan who's the titular character of the play by Augusta Gregory and everyone's favourite fuckboy poet and folklorist, W.B. Yeats. When the play was first performed in 1902, Yeats actually took full credit for the play. It was only later that Lady Gregory was given the credit she deserves. And she probably wrote most of the play, or at least most of the good bits. You can sort of get a feeling as to when Yeats has written something because it is, well, it's very very heavy on the poetic symbolism. The play is dripping, you practically have to mop the stage after a performance of it. Kathleen Nahulahan is a poetic and mystical symbol of Ireland. She is Ireland personified. And on the old Irish banknotes, there was a picture of Kathleen Nahulahan taken from a painting by John Laverley. She's sitting next to a backdrop of hills and lakes, in a green dress with a dark shawl just falling off her auburn curls, her chin resting on her hand as she looks at the viewer, and her elbow resting on a harp. This painting is pretty heavy on the Irish nationalist symbolism, which makes it slightly ironic that the model who is portraying Kathleen Nahulahan, the face of Kathleen Nahulahan for many, many Irish people, is the face of Lady Hazel Laverley, artist in her own right and artist's model, who was born in Illinois. And the painting is done by her husband, Sir John Laverley, who was a knighted peer of the British realm. I just find that a little bit amusing. The Lavellys themselves, they were involved in the Irish nationalist cause. Their house in London was used for the treaty negotiations. And after the assassination of Michael Collins, Lavely painted the very famous picture of Collins lying on his deathbed entitled The Love of Ireland. But it still tickles me that this image of Kathleen Nahulahan, this very Irish image, is actually rather global. But on to Kathleen Nahulahan, the play. As I've said, the play was written by Gregory and Yeats, in that order. First performed in 1902, is set at the end of the 18th century and has the 1798 rebellion as its background. This was one of the many rebellions against British rule in Ireland and as with many of them, it was grand, romantic and doomed. It's a one-act play and it all takes place in the farmhouse of the Gillahan family. The Gillahan family are preparing for the wedding of their eldest son, Michael, who is engaged to Delilah Cahill. They're discussing arrangements for the wedding, things like making sure that they get the dowry, making sure they get the priest, all the usual things you would expect. Outside at the bay, they can hear cheering and calling as the preparations for the rebellion are underway, but they pay it no mind. It doesn't concern them. They're just normal people trying to get on with their normal lives. It's at this point that the family are visited by a mysterious old woman in a cloak. You should always be suspicious when a mysterious old woman in a cloak appears in your kitchen. 
The family take pity on her and invite her inside. They ask her what her troubles are and she tells them that there are too many strangers in her house and that she once had four beautiful green fields but they have been stolen from her. The family are sympathetic but the son Michael seems strangely drawn to the old woman especially when she starts to sing old songs of patriots and talking about those who have died for Ireland. She weaves a spell over him as she tells him about the men who have died for her, the blood that has been shed for her, and how many more lives must be sacrificed and much more blood must be shed in order for her to regain her four green fields and to banish the strangers from her house. She reveals herself to be, in fact, Kathleen Nuhulahan, the poor old woman of Ireland, and it is only through the blood of young men that she can be restored to her former glory. Michael, now fully under her spell, vows that he shall go and join in the rebellion and leaves the house, leaving behind his family and his fiancée to meet the French ships that have landed at Killala Bay. Kathleen then leaves, singing the refrain of her song, They shall be speaking forever. The people shall hear them forever. When Michael's parents return, they find that their eldest son is gone and so is the old woman. They ask their younger son, Peter, if he happened to see the old woman leave, and he replies to them no, but he did see a young girl walking out of the house, a young woman who had the bearing of a queen. It's implied that this is Kathleen the Houlihan, whose youth has been restored to her, although possibly only temporarily, by Michael agreeing to sacrifice himself for Ireland. The play's themes are, are pretty explicit. It's all about nationalism and blood sacrifice. The role of Kathleen Houlihan was originally played by Maud Gaughan, a six-foot goddess and well-known nationalist campaigner and orator. Having her in the title role was just adding another thick layer to the play, proclaiming that this was meant to be seen as a rallying cry, designed to set a fire in the soul of the Irish people. It's meant to be idealistic and inspirational. There's been a lot written analysing the play. From the use of language, Gregory is particularly known in her playwriting for using a Hiberno-English dialect to the use of symbolism, to the contrast between the ideal male patriotic hero remaking himself in the form of Cúhollán and Wolftone, throwing off the shackles of everyday life for some greater ideal, and those who have to deal with the arduous everyday things, dealing with the economic realities of the world, whose sacrifices aren't poetic or great, but instead are small and many. They're the ones who make the grand gestures possible, and after the grand gesture has been made, they're the ones left behind to sweep up the pieces. I find this depiction of the Loathful Lady particularly interesting because, well, in it, Kathleen de Houlihan is essentially a vampire. She needs the blood of young men in order to survive and renew herself. You could read it, or at least I can read it, almost rather than being about Irish nationalism, but this idea of nationalism in general as this again, vampiric parasite that takes over people's minds and lives, that lives only through the shedding of their blood. The nationalist vampire it doesn't care about the people. It doesn't see them as individuals. It sees them only as a tool, as something to be fed into the machine and spat out. Lives given up without thought or concern to feed the ideal of nationalism. This loathful lady doesn't grant sovereignty. She takes blood like Elizabeth Bathory disguised in a Conseil cloak. She needs the blood of the young in order to renew herself. Without a constant supply of unquestioning sacrifice, her beauty fades, and her only concern is how to get that glamour back. I'm always wary around the word nationalism. Speaking in an Irish context, 
it, it gets a bit confusing because we refer to Irish nationalism when we're referring to the historical movement, when we're talking about striving for independence, self-governorship, self-determination. But I'm always worried that there is a slight shadow to that of the more sinister type of nationalism. And then when you get into the later 20th century and early 21st century, there's a lot of association between Irish nationalism and the IRA. But my discomfort around the words nationalism and Irish nationalism, they don't so much stem from the troubles, though that is part of what leaves the unpleasant taste in my mouth. Uh, for those of you who don't know what the troubles are, they're period, they refer to a period of time between uh, the 1960s and the 1990s of ethno-nationalistic conflicts mostly based around Northern Ireland, but there were events that happened in the Republic of Ireland, there were events that happened in Britain. If you've seen Derry Girls, uh, that's set against the background of the Troubles. You can look it up. There are many documentaries and podcasts made by historians who can explain it better than I can. It's a big, messy, bloody and bloody complicated thing. My trouble with nationalism, just even the use of the word nationalism, is it always has either slightly implied or blatantly an us versus them mentality. We are good. They are bad. We have a right to be here. They don't. And while that might start as us being the people living in this country and they being the colonial power trying to take over and oppress, it also starts to morph and allow in other things. What counts as the criteria of the us that are allowed to be here? Is it that our families have been here for a certain amount of generations? Is it the way we look? Is it being part of a particular religion? And soon the criteria of what makes us us isn't so much based on what we are, but what we aren't. And since everything that the us isn't makes the them them, and since the us is the good and the them is the bad, well then the us starts to hate all the things that they aren't and all of the them which is a very roundabout and rambly way of me trying to say I don't really like nationalism because I feel it has the inbuilt potential to foster xenophobia and racism, as well as sexism, homophobia, transphobia, ableism, and just all of those horrible things that add up to fascism. And I'm not saying that all nationalists are fascists. I'm not saying that all of the Irish nationalists involved in the fight for independence were therefore fascists. Although if you look at De Valera, he was a little bit... Uh... And as usual, I could go on about Yeats. On nearly every topic, I could get sidetracked into ranting about Yeats. I'm really hoping that one day Hog and Dice makes good on their threat to do a full-length video rant about WB. But no, my the point I'm trying to make is I feel and fear that nationalism often has a slight undercurrent or shadow that could then be nurtured into a fascist ideology. And I'm wondering if this is the first thing I'm going to get hate tweets about. It's weird, I'm a queer woman who talks on the internet and yet I've received, I think I've received no hate tweets actually. I think I'm just that niche and that low level that I don't attract any attention. This is not where I thought I would end up uh, when talking about the loathful lady. If you've made it all the way through the episode, Thank you very much. I hope you've enjoyed the stories and have been able to put up with my ramblings. If you would like to get in contact with me, tell me about your favourite Loathful Lady story and what interpretation you take from it. You can reach me on Instagram at Tales from the Shadows, on Twitter at Tales Shadows. Uh, they're all linked in the episode description, don't worry. If you liked the episode, um, you know, do all those rate and review things, share it with a friend. 
And if you really, really liked it and would like to help financially support the podcast, there's also a link to the Patreon below. I hope you're all safe. I hope you're all well, physically, mentally, emotionally, and that you stay that way. That's goodbye from me and from the dogs. Wear a mask and stay safe.